podcast where we discuss ideas, skills, and strategies for establishing the free, progressive Californian nation state of the future. My name's Cody. I'm an early childhood educator, labor organizer, and independent artist from Southern California. I'm Jorge, a California-based creative writer, subculture enthusiast, future teacher, and musician. I'm Cole, a freelance language and culture consultant, migration advocate, and California native. This is Amelie Desermo, and today we're going to talk about constituent advocacy or how to engage our federal legislators through a relationship model. So essentially, I wanted to um, to like preface this by saying that what I'll talk to you all about and the sort of like advocacy tactic that I'll be talking about is specifically what I deal with in my work. Uh, so it's from the perspective of Catholic Relief Services. And so... I feel like I invite y'all to question it, (laughs) too, and I invite y'all to think about, you know, how does this not apply to me in ways? Because I think Mm. that sometimes, yeah, like that can also be beneficial to y'all to be able to see... You know, this this is one aspect and it may or may not. So we'll just get into this. I just recently started this job. So no pressure. We're probably the most laid back audience you could have for this. (laughs) (laughs) Good. Again, like the reason why I say that this might not be for you is I want to explain a little bit. So Catholic Relief Services is an international relief and development agency and they work in 114 countries. So whenever we do advocacy on the U.S. side, it's specifically for pieces of legislation that will impact international relief and development work. And so it all happens at the federal level. So it's not like making local changes. So I know that that is not y'all's focus. So that is just something that I wanted to clarify. Don't worry. It's totally like we're we're advocates for California foremost, but part of that does include cooperating on like humanitarian and global issues with the international community. Okay. And our thing is kind of looking at the federal government not being satisfied with the way they handle it, but empowering California to participate on that global scale for stuff like humanitarian things. That's totally right up our alley. Okay. Awesome. So we are currently at TRS working on a piece of legislation called the Global Child Thrive Act, which mandates that that the U.S. would integrate early childhood development interventions in all of its international programming. So yeah, and because it's a huge organization, like we have, we have people specifically working in D.C. to like make sure that the timing of our asks, you know, are all lined up and that we're strategically getting the right people to speak to legislators at the right time. So these are the sorts of issues that we work with advocacy wise. So like our D.C. team works on all of them, but they choose specific issues to get like constituents, just normal local people to get involved with. So that's where the early childhood development came in. But so this is a policy cycle, but I really am just showing this to show that the policy cycle is very complicated. <laughs> it's not linear. It's not a circle. So that's part of the challenge in terms of getting involved with legislative advocacy is that it's complicated. This is also to say that the sort of approach that we take is more relational. Like there are flavors of advocacy. There's a time and a place for all the flavors of advocacy. So sometimes that's that's protests, sometimes that's demonstrations, and that's more like confrontational, but I don't mean to say that in a negative way. <laughs> like it's not negative, it's just that there are ways where that's effective. And the type of advocacy that we focus on at CRS is more a relational And then because we actually do implementation there, we also become advisors as well on policy. I guess what that means, what I mean by relational, is that it's more focused on constituent meetings. So meeting with our legislators, writing our legislators, calling our legislators, and getting to know them and mapping out who all is where. So really knowing that there are people in these positions that make changes, knowing who those people are, and getting to know those people. So that's where we focus our work. And I would say that the mass demonstration type comes in whenever that relationship is unhealthy. So continuing with this relational track, like a relationship is a two-way thing, right? It's not just that I know you and I talk to you. It's that if we're able to both talk to each other, our legislators or our change makers, policymakers, and us, the constituents, if we're able to be in relationship and relationship sometimes means compromising, sometimes means, you know, just getting to know them and where they stand, even if where they stand is different than you But if they're not open to that, if they have just their door shut and closed and they're not trying to have a relationship with constituents, then that's sort of where that confrontation.
organizational track and that activism track comes in. So yeah, but at CRS, we're constituent focused. What that means is that we believe and not just believe in a loose sense, but we truly have a bit of data to back it up to that constituent advocacy does matter because there's questions like, is that even worth it? You know, or they just care about being relationship with lobbyists or people that are, you know, going to put money in their pocket. So those are valid questions, but we choose to, to believe and support that actually constituent us normal people do have a place in the change making process. So that is based on this research done by, and I personally question it, okay, a little bit because the research group who did this, this Congressional Management Foundation, but it was specifically to look at the role of constituent in citizen advocacy. And so I think that because of that, I'm like, well, if that was the point of the research, then can we trust the data? But anyway, this is the data and this is what we use to justify that, that we do matter. So basically this says like the first finding was that direct constituent interactions have more influence on lawmakers' decisions than other advocacy strategies. So these are the list of examples of the type of citizen advocacy that we can do. And it says that in-person issue visits from constituents is the most, but very close with contact, phone calls, town halls, those sorts of things. So Congress places a high value on groups and citizens who have built relationships with the legislator and staff. So again, that meetings and direct communication. So whenever we are having these communications, and this is what's good for you guys, because whenever we're focusing at CRS on just international issues, it's a little hard to but it's possible to bring in the local focus. How does this bill impact our district? So that makes a big difference in these meetings. So I would say focusing in on that, if you are going to be having meetings with policymakers to focus on if this bill is a whole statewide bill or if it's a whole federal bill, what is the actual impact that that bill is going to have on your district that you're talking to, to the district representative or whatever? All right. So questions to ask. So this is where we need to do some mapping. We call it relational mapping. And that's basically who is where and also thinking creatively about it. So because you need to know who's where to then know who you're targeting, what you're asking why. To answer these questions, you first got to know what are the options. And sometimes that means that you want to map who are the legislators that deal with the issues that you're talking about, who's on what committee, but also who is their staff, who are people that they talk to or their organizations that they value. So it's finding, you know, all the various points of entry and, you know, advancing whatever piece of legislation you're going for, or whatever it is that that you're working on. And then you want to ask these questions. And this is where I would say answering these questions are full-time jobs for people. There are people who this is what they do. And there's a reason for that because of that complicated policy process that I showed before. Like so much is about who's on the inside, who has intel. They'll know when a meeting is happening. Because oftentimes, if you're just relying on the public-facing website that the government run that says this is the meeting happening, this is what's going to be on the agenda. So you can follow that for the Senate and the House, but those are posted a little bit later than what someone maybe on the inside would know. So I think that my point there is maybe to emphasize again the importance of relationship and relational mapping. So if you can have a relationship with an organization who does pay for advocates for full-time people on those jobs, yeah. But basically our system really values structures, <laughs> official structures like organizations. Yeah. Who do you want to mobilize to take those actions? Is it that you need to ask their specific friend, one key influencer or someone with a lot of power to make this ask? Or is this something that works better for lots of people to be calling in for? So that's another thing to ask there and sequencing the timing. Again, this is a bit complicated as folks without insider intel, but it's still possible if you have the right connections. But these are the types of impactful actions that we as individual constituent can take. This is what I was sort of talking on a little bit, but our system really values structures like organizations and coalitions. So I would say that something that would be useful for y'all to do for each of your issue points, whatever it is, the things that you're that you're going for is to find a national or local organization that is already addressing your key issues and join forces particularly if they have people whose full-time job is to keep track of where pieces of legislation are. They can help with the timing of those actions. But if you don't have that, that's also okay. You can still make impacts. You can keep track of the public-facing government website. Let's say, you know, when their next city hall meeting is and what's going to be on the agenda. You just might have to be a little bit more on top of that. Forming a coalition, that's where credentialing 
credentialing <laughs> comes from. It's important in these meetings and in your letters to say like, we are a part of this group or this coalition that not just our committee, but it's other groups that are signed on to this same issue. And that's like the use of petitions. They're not these standalone things, but they're things that organizations or groups like yours can use to just add force to your ass. So, you know, all of these people signed on, but all of those people signing on isn't going to make a difference in itself. It's more like a tool that you use whenever you're approaching policymakers. So I'm going to give a little bit of an example that I did while I was at UL, University of Louisiana. So I had a social justice committee that I had there and we wanted to have the clothes in the bookstore source by instead of Nike or like fast fashion brands to source them from a factory that was a co-op in the Dominican Republic. Y'all might be into this, but they unionized. They had been at a factory that was exploiting them. They unionized, all got fired, and then they started their own factory. Uh, so it was a co-op and they owned it. They were all paid fair wages and they had just lots of amazing inspirational stories. And we said, well, we want you all's clothes to be sourced from this company. You know, we got to make sure that we all in solidarity give these folks business. So the process of that, initially we were just like, we want to promote fair trade or ethical trade. And then I just started searching. I was like, well, who who does this? And there was an organization or this lady whose nonprofit was specifically to promote this factory. And she gave guidance and tools on how to make that change in a university. So that was sort of where this partnership came from. I was able to get the resources and guidance and connections that I needed. And she had a personal relationship with this factory. She would go and visit them. So she was able to direct us more concretely to them. So that, that was very useful, connecting in with this organization that was doing this with universities all over. And then we formed a coalition with other student groups. So we said, what all student groups would be into this? And we had them all sign on to a letter. And then we would go to classes and we'd have petitions. So, you know, all students could petition and say, yes, this is a good idea. Then we figured out who do we need to approach and who makes the decisions on what goes in the bookstore in the university. And we kind of had to map that out. And we decided ultimately that the quickest way of action, instead of approaching the bookstore owner who might have their own opinions, or there was another office at the school that was sort of in charge of the bookstore, we said, we're just going to go to the president of the university, actually, and just go directly to him because that would be like our fastest track because otherwise it might have to go up to him. So we wanted to go to him and then he would give that directive down. So we went and just delivered the letter. We weren't able to talk to the president, but we delivered the letter to his staff and who delivered it to the president of the university who did not respond. Every week, we'd go back and deliver that letter. Well, we started bringing cookies with us to the staff and getting to know the staff. And after we did that, like literally after bringing chocolate chip cookies to the staff, the president gave us a call and said yes, but also said he really didn't like our letter. He said it was very demanding and had lots of suggestions for edits and said, you know, this was just inappropriate and insensitive. And so that was a little bit of a learning lesson. But at the same time, I, I kind of go back and forth in retrospect, looking at that example, like, you know, maybe we weren't culturally aware enough of what he would respond to. So maybe we should have been more respectful in that. But at the same time, that might have not been given him the push enough to, to say something. Oh, and another thing that we did. So this is another important piece. So during that time where we kept delivering the letter every week and he wouldn't respond, we contacted a local news station and they came and did interviews with us. And we told them about, about what it was that we were asking and the fact that the president hadn't responded yet. And yeah, so maybe that did more than the cookies. I forgot about that part. So <laughs> yeah, so at the point is eventually he did he did respond. And I think it was the right decision to go to the top rather than start with the bookstore owner because he was able to quickly make sure that that got changed. So within a matter of two months, the bookstore started carrying the fair trade clothing or ethically made clothing from this factory in the Dominican Republic. We had also asked that they reduce the orders from Nike and these other brands. They didn't do that. They just added ours as an option. But they did follow our demand that we wanted it displayed centrally. We wanted people to be informed that this wasn't just more clothes. You know, the importance of that this was made from an ethical factory. And now I think this gets to another point. If you do succeed, if you get to the change that you make, you need to celebrate. <laughs> uh, and you need to follow through too. So we did have a celebration of that. And we were so excited because of this connection that we had 
with the organization that was promoting that factory, they were able to have a Zoom call with the folks who had led that first union effort and formed this factory. And that was amazing. Like we were just so excited. We all got to see and witness them. And they were able to kind of tell us about the benefits of, you know, what this will do. And that that helped us not just feel good and celebrate what was achieved, but that also we were able to leverage that to then advertise the clothing because we didn't just need the clothing there. We needed people to buy the clothing. If that was going to remain in the bookstore, it had to keep being purchased. So that was sort of this element of follow through that I think we hadn't fully thought about, but it ended up working out fine. But I think that that is something I'd like to stress. It's not just enough to get a policy passed. It needs to be implemented and needs to be enforced and followed. And that there's also room and need for constituent advocacy there to make sure that things are actually being done how you ask them and how it was said it would be done. So I think that was just a, an example that I wanted to share because I thought that might be applicable to y'all. I think I'm talking a lot and I'd like to pause before I get into a little bit of like the how to's of how to do some of these meetings. Mm -hmm. If you have questions or comments or thoughts. Yeah, we can do that. Correct me if I'm the only one who noticed this. It seems like there's a real interesting parallel exactly between what you said constituent advocacy organizations like the CRS do with those constituents and with what we talked about last week, how, how unions help their workers. I just wanted to point that out and just say how that's a beautiful connection. And if I'm understanding that correctly, did you get that same impression, Cody? Yeah, honestly, I was thinking about that too. And I was kind of trying to think about how to put it. But I, I think there are a lot of parallels here because it, it really... It seems like it, at least when it comes down to it, it is just organizing people. It's more organizing people around an idea than like your shared working conditions. And I'm very interested in the how-to here. And what I'm most interested in seeing is kind of the differences in process when it comes to actually getting people to support the central idea of what you are trying to achieve, like how you get people around that piece of legislation. I'm very, very interested in seeing how that compares to this. Mm -hmm. um, with the unionizing effort, a big part of it for us was really just giving people space to voice their issues with the workplace and things they generally saw, and then pointing out to them, hey, we could fix that if we joined a union. And showing people that there is an option here. There is a road to go down to fix these things for us and take that into our own hands. And just before we get into it, I guess, how do you think this differs then from that process where instead of just kind of showing people a path to go down, this seems a lot more involved from the organizer point of view. And I, I'm sure we'll get into it. Yeah. So what it looks like as an organizer for me is. So to get people on board to be constituent advocates, I have to do a lot of one-on-one -on -one meetings. And I think that people like to jump to this. Okay, if I just do this broad presentation or this broad demonstration that people will be like, yeah, I want to do that. And that is sometimes enough for people. But in a lot of ways, and I guess like here's a little bit of a difference because with the unionizing, it's maybe easier to motivate people to do it because it like so directly impact them. Whereas especially with my work in dealing with getting people to advocate for policies that doesn't do anything for the US really, it like just does stuff for, for our neighbors overseas. There's a disconnect there. So it really just has to come from people's goodwill. And doing just like a presentation or whatever isn't usually enough. And people are going to say yes. And maybe this is a cultural aspect, like of a South Louisiana culture aspect. People say yes to their friends. <laughs> people say yes to their family. Like mm. even like yes for things that maybe they wouldn't have like found the time for. And so I think that in a lot of ways, it's like so much time has to be put into literally just getting to know people and really figuring out what it is that drives them and how what you're going for fits in with their core motivations. And so that is so much groundwork and so much time that's spent before you even get into the, okay, now we're doing the actions. And once it does get into that place of like, we are all ready to say yes to being advocates for this, then it's making sure that they know that there is clear strategy for it. So again, that's where I'm thankful as an organizer that I am working at an organization that has people who are like, that's their job is to figure out the strategy of it. 
Yeah. So I, I would say that that y'all would have to have a clear plan of, of action that people know that their steps are sequenced and make sense and are thought through. But then from there, like the actual like getting them to do it is like once the relationship's there, once they're like, I'm going to do this and they know that it's a clear path forward and they've got the guidance and support and skills needed, it flows pretty smooth. It's just a matter of making sure people get called up and, and they show up because that great groundwork has been laid. So I hope that answers the question. I'm not entirely sure if it does. No, totally, totally. Okay, um, something that really stands out to me in your answer, which I think is very interesting and I never really thought about from like an organizer's perspective. It seems like to me on your end with the constituent advocacy stuff and the policy advocacy stuff, it's kind of an opposite side of the coin. At least for me in the union organizing, a lot of that groundwork's already been laid because... Mm-hmm we work together. I see them every day and the relationship's already been built where it feels like for what you do in your side of things, it's a lot more relationship building. And then once you get to that point and people know, Hey, I can trust them. They're cool. I know what they're talking about. They have a plan. People seem pretty on board to kind of jump on and help out. Yeah. Um, And I, I think that's kind of a beautiful thing when you think about it, you know, one side is building relationships with people around these global issues. And the other is looking at kind of where we as individuals spend the most part of our lives and working with the people that we spend the most time with in our lives to help ourselves almost. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's great. And I think that is exciting to hear. I feel like if y'all are focusing on union efforts, I think that it will be successful. I think maybe maybe a struggle there that I see that doesn't exist as much on my end of the struggle is that there's a powerful oppressor on top working to like suppress that. So I think that's not something that we face quite as much. It's more like people will just say, no, I don't want to get on board. Or legislators will say, no, I don't want to support that. But there's not so much active opposition to it. There's some of it, but I feel like it's not as direct or as clear because the policy process, as you saw, is like so complicated. The policy process to oppose is not as complicated, but also complicated. Whereas I feel like it's a little bit more linear with the, the unionizing issue that the opposition could more linearly and strongly oppose. So that's a little bit of a difference that I see there too. Okay, I'm going to get into a little bit of not so much the how-tos of organizing, but how-tos of specific actions that can be taken. And this is intuitive. And it sort of sounds silly for me to even teach you how to do these things because you would probably intuitively know it. I think that the point for me in a lot of these times that I do these presentations is that people don't even know that it's an option. So it's more letting people know you can meet with your legislators. That's fully something that can be done. You can call, you can write. And these days, we know that a little bit more than whenever I first started doing this work about six years ago, that it wasn't broadcasted on Instagram that we can call our legislators. And so it was sort of information. But yes, but now we know. So hopefully this is still useful to you regardless. I might not follow the slides too much because I started reading a journal entry that I made for this creative art activism project thing. It's like a sisterhood of the traveling pants situation, but with a journal where people all over the country sort of like contribute their ideas. And yesterday, I just got it back after I made this presentation and realized that there was an entry that kind of sequenced these actions a little bit better than I put in the presentation. So I might just go with what was written in the journal. So essentially, you want to have everyone sticking to the same one to two issues at a time. It's important, I think, to not tackle a bunch of things at once. You can say these are our things for now, and we'll get to the next things later. Then like a place to start in terms of legislative advocacy. So this doesn't just have to be with our U.S. senators and representatives. Legislative advocacy sometimes means the sheriff, sometimes means your district representative, someone that sits in city council. So you just keep this in mind. While I work with the U.S. reps and senators, it's not just that. So a place to begin is writing a letter. And so that is where you'll first make it known. This is what we want to talk to you about. And hopefully at this point, you maybe have a coalition, you've got a petition, you can include that information in your letter. You want the letter in all of your points of contact, whether it's a meeting, a call, a letter, 
It needs to have background information. It needs to be supported. Hopefully it's evidence-based. Hopefully you've got some data that can support what you're going for. Maybe there's an example of this has been done somewhere and it worked this way and this is the changes it made. And so you want to be able to like give that information. And like I said earlier, how would that then impact your district locally? If you can do that, if you don't, that's okay. But also, like, who are you personally? What is your personal connection to this? Why do you care? What motivates you? That seems like silly to do. And it's like this, you don't need this to make a decision, but they're people and they are motivated by their own individual desires. You are personally motivated by individual desires. And that is a part of the building relationship with this policymaker. So it's important to make it personal. It stands out to them too. Makes them know this isn't just some form that you followed. Yeah. And then you want to make an ask. What is your ask? What is the most strategic ask? Is it that we want them to sponsor it? Is it that we want them to bring it up, this issue up in their next meeting? Is it that you want to think about that ask and just straight up make it clear? And also please respond. <laughs> you know, like we ask them to respond. Like don't just get this and hear it. Like tell me what you think. What is your answer to this? And then actually we used to do physical letters, but now that delays their time getting it, not just the time of postage, but they also all physical mail that they get has to like go through some sort of process to make sure it's not arsenic or something. So probably you're just going to email this and you will probably, especially if you're dealing with our U.S. representatives and senators, just get a form basic letter in response and it'll be clear that they probably didn't even read it but that's okay you sent the letter that's where you begin so then you follow up with a call and you'll probably just talk to someone on the staff so 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 important with calls is to get the name of the person you're speaking to i often forget that i think that i'm just like talking to a robot and i'm telling you this is a thing that i care about and goodbye you know like you make it quick and simple but you don't have to do all that and you shouldn't especially if someone actually picks up you're not just leaving a voicemail like you get the name of that person and hopefully what is their job position because definitely with our with our US reps and senators but also with our local policymakers their staff is probably the person you're actually going to be forming a relationship with for a while and that was sort of even exemplified at UL we never saw the president of UL directly. He called us once, but mostly we talked to his staff. Value that and know that they do make a difference. And they're the ones that are putting issues to the forefront of uh, the policymakers. So yes. Uh, and again, ask for a response. Make sure that they know you sent a letter. We would really like a response from this policymaker. Now you want to get the media involved, media attention. So that's where letter to the editors sound old school and silly. Do people even read newspapers anymore? They do apparently. And not just people, actually like our legislators read those. That is where they go to for what is the public opinion on this. So more so important as a direct way to, to talk to them than it is as a way to mobilize mass action around. Like if you're trying to mobilize a bunch of people in your area around an issue, you're going to want to go to like social media for that or in person but letter to the editor is another avenue to get this in the eyes of the policymaker. So letter to the editor. Similarly, you want to just figure out what newspaper you want to go to has good uh, distribution. Find, you know, on their website, they'll tell you either email it to us or it'll just be like an online form. And you want to read other letters to the editor. What's their tone? How long are they? They generally want to have a hook. And by hook, I mean, it'll be like in reference to this article that you published or in reference to the, this other letter to the editor, here's a response to that. So you want to make sure that your issue that you're talking about ties into the sorts of things that they're publishing. Sometimes that is a stretch. <laughs> Sometimes you have to stretch that connection a little bit, but it can happen. Um, and then you can use that as a tool to reference in your follow-up calls to the policymaker's office. Like, you know, you might have seen this article or this letter to the editor published in, you know, X and Y newspaper. That'll make it a little bit more interesting to them. And sort of along those lines, any other sort of media that you could do, a letter to the editor is generally just the easiest. But if you're having an event, a press release, and there are forms, templates for press releases, but you want to get the local media's eyes on what you're doing. But letter to the editor is generally just a good first place to begin in flexing that media muscle. Then you want to call them again, make sure that they know, and you really want to start asking for meetings. And 
they do meetings, they do it. They like to know that you're not just some crazy individual asking for this. So again, that's where this credentialing, 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 whatever that is, you want to, you want to be credentialed <laughs> and they need to know that you're part of this coalition, but they often limit the amount of people that can go to these meetings. So you want to know who are my four key people that can speak on this. And the meetings is where, where it happens. You'll most likely meet with a staff member, actually. If it's local, you might meet with the actual legislator, but my experience, with the U.S. reps and senators is that if it's a town hall, they'll show up. But if it's a direct meeting, which is more effective, it'll be a staff member. But know that that is just as valuable, if not more valuable, especially if you've been developing relationship with the staff through calls, you know who they are, you know what they work for and what issues they, they do. So the sort of step-by-step guide for a meeting First, you want to familiarize yourself with your member's position on the issues. Hopefully, through this whole process, you know where they stand. And if they are entirely opposed (laughs) to it. And so you've got to know that there's a scale. There is this thought process. It's called the champion scale. And basically, how to determine where they stand on an issue and what you can do in response to where they stand to get them to move up on the, the scale. So that is important to know where they stand and that'll help y'all determine that. But basically you want to contact their office, their staff four to six weeks in advance of your desired meeting to schedule that because it takes a little bit of a process to schedule it. You want to offer multiple dates and times. Once it's scheduled, you're going to need to call and email them a few days before to confirm. It's a process to even get it scheduled, but you got to stay on it. It will happen. You just have to be persistent. So then you want to prepare, gather as a group, you want to review the relevant materials, and you want to assign roles. You want to make sure that everyone who is there has a role to play. And what those potential roles are is there's someone to introduce the group and say, again, credentialing. Then you want to kind of tell them, this is what we're going to talk to you about. Then you want to have someone that talks about this is the issue and can can personalize it, why it's important, what they've witnessed personally. And if they don't have their own personal story, you know, here's where storytelling really comes into play. Like they need to be inspired and drawn in. And that can really change where they stand on the issue. So that oftentimes groups will bring in witnesses, like people who have been personally affected by these issues. And you want to think that just data drives their decisions, but it's not just that. It's also like their heart. So that is important. Then you want to ask specifically for the member support or whatever your ask is. So you make that ask and then there are two options here. You can also do both, but you definitely want to have the basically the gist of what you are saying in the meeting. Either send that to them beforehand or give it to them at the end of the meeting. So you don't have to rely on the staff member's ability to take good notes. You can provide their notes for them of what they're going to pass on to the legislator. So you want that to be a good, clear document, but a leave behind or a give before either way you want to do it. um, That is a very important piece to include in your meetings. So then afterwards, you want to debrief as a group. What did you hear? What, What did the staff members say? You know, did they give you a clear answer? If they didn't, what are our next steps? How did you do as team, as individuals? What could you do better or differently next time? And then you want to thank your member. Send a thank you note or an email. I feel like we have, in many ways, lost the, the love for thank you notes. But what they serve here is not just to say thank you, but to remind them. We met with you. And you don't have to make any ask in the thank you note, but just thank them. But that's a reminder that y'all met and... Y'all are in relationship and you are going to follow up. So if they did say that they are going to support this, if it's like co-sponsoring a bill, keep track of the list of co-sponsors on that bill. Did they actually do it? If they didn't do what they said that they're going to do, you need to call them again or you may need to have another meeting and figure out what happened there. And then if it's passed, like I said before, what is the follow through to make sure that actually gets implemented? And so I think that was all that I had to say. There is so much that can be said about this topic, but yeah. All right. Very informative. Thank you again. Yes, a lot of interesting stuff here. One of the things that stood out to me, going back to that anecdote you shared with your experience implementing some changes at UL mentioning something about the letter was it was too rude or worded impolitely and you said you should have predicted the culture difference and don't just from my limited experience in louisiana i can kind of imagine the sort of tone that this guy might have been expecting yeah. uh, compared to what you might have written i can only imagine how different it might be compared to something i would write for example so 
just out of curiosity, in your words, how would you describe that cultural element? How often does that come into play? And you have a distinct opinion about the culture in Washington. Does it differ to the one you're used to? Yeah, I would say that with the president of UL, and it mimics sort of what we see in Washington. It's they're expecting paternalism. They want to be thanked and appreciated and they just are on their high horse a little bit and they want to be like acknowledged in that way and they're used to being treated in that way with just respect and the whole red carpet out for them they know what's best and they make these big decisions and work really hard all the time on these things and so yeah that's what they expect so it is like towing the line of being like well we want to push past this we want them to acknowledge that that we have information that's worth contributing and that's worth hearing and so we don't want to grovel so much that they don't have respect for us. So you want to be able to be respected, but also you don't want to push them away right off the bat. So it is a little bit of towing that line and having the balance act. And that's where the thinking, even if it's someone that you just despise and you hate everything about them, in your outreach to them and your messaging to them, how can you begin the message with things? What is one thing that they've done that you did appreciate or that sort of aligns? So you've got to do research on them. That's something you're going to get more of as you build a relationship. But on the front end, what that looks like is Googling them or going to their website if they have one and finding something that you can connect in just an appreciative way. Yeah. The compliment sandwich technique. Yes. <laughs> compliment <Okay>. sandwich. <laughs> compliment <laughs> critique. Soften it up, but not so much that just not even seen as... For us in our union negotiations, we kind of run into that same effect a little bit with our bosses. Mm -hmm. And it's something they're just used to. And what I've kind of found is it's really kind of an exercise in empathy for us as the workers, because they legitimately feel that way. And they legitimately think that they work super hard and that they deserve what they're getting paid and that nothing's going wrong and they don't understand why we're complaining. And so for me, at least, what tends to help is just trying to put myself in their shoes and think, okay, what is the mindset that they're operating within? Mm-hmm. And that's usually how I try to frame it when I need to connect to them on something because there is a big disconnect between my life and theirs and our experience. Yeah. But you can still bridge that gap a little bit just by using a little bit of empathy. And it, it can be hard when it is somebody that is very much on the other side of the issue from you. Yeah. But I, I think that's the cool thing about empathy, though, is we can always bridge that gap. Absolutely. I think that's that's right on it. And that's what we're asking them to do. Like mm-hmm. we're we're asking them to empathize with our issues. And so yeah, I but I do wonder, Cole, I don't know if you know about Clay Higgins, our representative in Lafayette, but he's horrible. Like absolutely horrible. And so because I just came back from New Orleans, so I'm used to having relationships with the representatives there and I haven't quite figured out how to get to the empathy side with Clay Higgins and Lafayette, Louisiana, but we'll get there. And so I think that sort of along those lines, the ideal situation would be that in these meetings with them, that you're in a place of dialogue. So not debate, which is hard because often what ends up happening with dialogue is that you're asked and what you're wanting to happen changes a little bit sometimes. Sometimes there's compromise. And that that's where you have to see, is this the route that we want to go? <laughs> because if you're going to go the relational route, then you might want to expect that, that things potentially change, particularly if who you're trying to advocate with is on the opposite side of you. So that's where I think that you want to question, do we just need to go the confrontational route (laughs) too? And I don't have personally much work experience with that where I can speak from that in a way that comes from experience. But sometimes that is the best route forward, especially if this is an issue that you don't want to compromise on. So which if y'all ever have someone speak to y'all about activism and not advocacy, I would love to also join that meeting because I would like to learn more about those sorts of avenues for, for change making too. Yeah, we most certainly will keep you posted about that. Another question, or hey, you've been quiet. Yeah, I, I have been quiet. I think in regards to that last question that we just brought up about trying to be empathetic and trying to, I guess, like try to get a message across from the point of interest from, from like a community to an administration, at least in the sense of a college environment. I think the main one right now that I can think of and the thing that affecting me the most is since I'm still a student at SDSU, you know, with COVID-19 still being unpredictable and still being very dominant, especially here in Southern California, a lot of students are being affected by that and are in many ways trying to convey their needs to 
the current president of SDSU. And we get bombarded with updates of budget cuts, these resources that are being offered to us. But the main thing that a lot of students are demanding is some sort of tuition cut. Because as of right now, it is appearing that tuition is going to be set at the same price as it would be for any other semester, which is around 3000 bucks, And that's if you're a full-time student. So if you're doing 12 credits and it's very infuriating and I can feel it amongst my peers and amongst other people that I've associated with because a majority of the people that are in my field are the humanity side of the, of the school. And if you're a humanities course, granted, yes, it's unsafe to have classes where you have 30 plus people in it or you have those lecture halls that have 200 people in them. Obviously, it's not safe. But the fact of the matter is that we are getting reduced this opportunity that we have. And a lot of people have moved out to try and get their education from out of state and then moving here. It's very infuriating for those college students because they're not getting the same education that they strive for. And that does sound a little privileged in a way. And I acknowledge that. But there has to be some sort of push to make it so that the students are being heard and they are being like accommodated with things that directly affect them, such as their financial situation. And rather than just getting stuff like, oh, yeah, we're going to give you guys a chance to rent out a laptop this upcoming semester because of the pandemic so that we can distance learn and things of that matter. Are they asking you to pay to rent for that laptop too? I am pretty sure that they are. <laughs> Just like anything else that they could get their hands on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I wonder, has there been dialogue on that? I mean, have there been any opportunities for the students to hear from administration, like why they're choosing to do what they're doing and for the administration to hear from the student? Are there mechanisms in place to hear from each other? I think that they have had some opportunities where they can chime in on like a Zoom meeting with some of the administration and they'll have talking points like this is where we're looking for our plan of attack for this upcoming semester. But I don't think that they've, or at least I haven't checked to see if they've had that recently. Hey, maybe it's something we can organize people around. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, it sounds like a perfect opportunity to use not only what we heard this week, but also what we heard last week. Right. Uh, Maybe we can make a student's union to advocate for some some more fair tuition policy. Exactly. I'm sure Um, we all know plenty of people who go to SDSU. (laughs) Yeah. I did think of another thing that I was trying to ask. So you've talked about some of the more theoretical, the ideological examples of how to do this stuff. Uh, And in your school, can you give us an example of what are some of the issues specifically that CRS is is focusing on or that you're working on? Yeah. Yeah. What I'm working on right now are, so basically like our model, our strategy, how it used to be is that CRS works on lots of different global issues. And it was sort of always trying to get people in the U.S. to care about it, maybe advocate on it, but it was like any sort of thing. And so what that it often ended up looked like was that everyone was doing something different or working on or caring about something different. And so now the new strategy is we have campaigns. So where everyone in the U.S. focuses on the same one to two issues at at a time. And our campaigns right now are a campaign on migration and a campaign on hunger. So we want people to get educated on those two things and respond to those two things. And we have one piece of legislation that we have everyone advocate for with occasionally supplemental things. For example, whenever we've made this plan, there wasn't a pandemic going on. And now there's lots of needs to advocate on the supplemental bills for COVID to make sure that we're doing humanitarian aid in that regard. So we added that in. But for the most part, we are focusing on the Global Child Thrive Act that I had mentioned at the beginning to get early childhood development integrated into our international programming. And what that looks like is that we have a government relations team at CRS that's located in DC. And since CRS has been doing early childhood development, had a lot of research about it, that it is evidence-based and it's working. So they actually worked with a coalition in DC to write the policy, which whenever policies don't deal with the budget, the legislator doesn't have to write it themselves. So that's another thing to think about. You can actually write the policy for them. And so CRS wrote the policy with a few other international organizations and then had a Hill Day where they got people in constituents from all states to go up 
and meet on the same day with their legislators <laughs> to ask for co-sponsors of the bill. And so as a result of that day at the Hill, we had co-sponsors in the Senate and in the House for the bill. It was an identical bill, which is important because if they don't pass an identical bill, then they have to conference it and it just takes longer. But but yeah, so we had sponsors in the Senate and the House. And the important thing with that is now we had people on the inside, actual legislators who were now taking the charge of making sure that this goes forward. And so their staff became our intel into where it's standing because it has to go to the committee meeting first. And so we knew the dates of when this is going to be in committee. So then whenever there are strategic, time-sensitive actions that had to be taken, and this is the benefit of being a part of Catholic Relief Services, we have this built-in infrastructure of the Catholic Church to utilize. And so we are able to get, okay, so this is a powerful bishop or whatever. It's like playing chess. Okay, so powerful <laughs> bishop, and we know bishop in this state connected to... The senator in Mississippi sat on this committee, and so we got the bishop in that state to call that senator directly. So for the time-sensitive things, we use key influencers to speak directly. But otherwise, we mobilize the masses, both masses like church masses, but also just lots of people to all be calling, writing their legislators, having a meeting with their legislators to ask that they sponsor the bill. And so the more sponsors that we had, the more likely that it would move out of committee and then be able to be passed on the House floor or the Senate floor. So, yeah, so that's basically what that looks like. And the current state of play of it is I actually did get in the House passed as an amendment to the NDAA, which was unfortunate because we don't like the NDAA as a bill. It basically calls for war and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, yeah, we, so we were like, not what we're going for. Uh, okay. But we still have the actual bill, not as an amendment still there. It has gone out of committee. It still hasn't been taken up by the committee in the Senate. So we're still holding out that we could pass the actual bill. But yeah, so there's multiple paths forward. Like it's not a linear thing. There are many options, but yeah, so that's what it's looking like on my end. And if y'all care about that, we do have chapters. So people who we've developed relationships with who are interested in advocating for international relief and development policies, we train them every month. So they are the part of a network of people who receive specific sequenced actions at specific times. So every month, everyone that is a part of our constituent advocates are doing the same action. And they're receiving the same training and support that they need to be able to get to the right people and do the right things in terms of advocacy. So that's a benefit, I would say, in terms of like the constituent advocacy side of linking in with other organizations that are doing work in areas that y'all care about to link in with them because that will just, I think, be more effective and impactful. And you will receive, hopefully, the sort of like resources and guidance that you need if you're linked in with an organization that has the capacity to do the sort of groundwork to know where bills are at the right time and all of that. So just now you mentioned something about your legislation getting tacked on with the NDAA. And I hear about stuff like this all the time. Allegedly, just the other day in the, the new COVID relief fund, there was several million dollars given to the F-35 program or something like that. Yeah. And it always just baffles me. What's your experience with that? Is there a way to to pass bills about important issues with a single issue without stuff getting snuck in there? So I guess someone with no experience of the legislative system, yeah. is that necessary? So before amendments can get tacked on, there is a committee that has to approve and say that it's germane, basically. like They have to say this is relevant to this bill in some way. And it's it doesn't actually have to be relevant to the bill to get tacked on. But basically, if you knew that that was about to happen, like if you had the sort of intel to know this is going to become an amendment or it's being asked to become an amendment, and who, what legislators on what committee is publicly available. So if you know these are legislators that, particularly if one of your state's legislators are on that committee, then you can reach out to them at that time and say, we don't support it. So that would be one of those time sensitive tasks that you would have to be on top of. But that's one point where it can be done. The next point is that oftentimes, so like the NDAA, for example, 
was passed in the House with the Global Job Drive Act as an amendment, but in the Senate, it was not passed with that as an amendment. So because the NDAA, and generally this is how it works, the bills that are passed in House and Senate are different even slightly, and they have to go into a conference committee to approve the final language of the bill or the final bill that gets passed on to the president. So that would be another point of entry to advocate with members of that conference committee and say, we don't want this amendment to actually be added to the final bill that's passed. So there are two points in which some intervention could happen. If there's anything else. I don't I don't have much else. I really appreciate your time. It was very, very interesting talking with you. And this well, gave me a lot of perspective on kind of something very similarly related to what I'm currently doing, but also very, very different. So I really, really appreciate it. Well, I appreciate y'all having me. I like talking to y'all because generally I'm talking to retired Catholic people. And so a very different audience. <laughs> a, a, very cha- uh, a very change of pace. <laughs> yeah, so I appreciate this opportunity to join yeah. y'all today. No problem. So just one more thing before you go. Give us like a plug if you know the name of that factory in the Dominican Republic. The name of the factory is Alta Gracia. And they make good clothes. And actually, oftentimes, ethically made clothing, the price point are like a lot more expensive. But the thing here was with fast fashion, there wasn't a need for these clothes to be more expensive because they just more equitably distributed the fund. There wasn't like a CEO making tons of money. So it was the same cost as the Nike clothing, but everyone was paid an equal fair wage. Very cool. And then sort of a similar thing, if you want to just give us a little plug, CRS. Catholic Relief um, Services. And honestly, we have people, we have regional field-based teams. So we have folks in California. The guy in y'all's area is Sergio Lopez, and he is awesome. And I feel like probably a like-minded individual to you guys. If y'all do want to tie into any of our international and humanitarian issues at any point, y'all are invited to. Our materials are not just for, we have them adjusted to work for Catholic and non-Catholic audiences. So, Well, thanks again, Amelie. Uh, It's great to see you again. Say hi to Zach and the baby for me. I will. Yeah, hopefully we'll we'll have another chat again soon. I'll keep you in the loop. Yeah, let me know. Bye, y'all. Cool. Bye. Have a great day. Do we have any ideas on the table yet for next week's? I don't know if everyone has like a subscription to Netflix or a way to like stream movies, but there's a new documentary that was just announced via Netflix. I think it's a documentary series and it focuses on the current situation on ICE and it's called Immigration Nation. I've heard from multiple people's responses and just little tidbit info. The government didn't want to announce. I, I guess. heard about that. They were trying to suppress it. Yeah. And from what I've heard from a colleague of mine who's also a teacher up in East LA, there's parts where it's very difficult to watch, but it's also like very informative and it raises issues as to like the role of ICE and such and so forth. So I thought we could probably have a discussion on those topics. I think think that's a good idea. Yeah, I'm super down for that. Right. We're going to watch Immigration Nation.